really great to be back with you. I've missed that uh, very much over the last month, not being here at church with you. And uh, so grateful for Katie and Joel leading us this morning. Well, um, if you want to, we're about to, we're going to do a pastoral prayer uh, here in a moment. But if we're going to be in Psalm 95, if you want to turn in your Bible there while you wait for me to get there. Um, I want to pray this morning for our church and particularly for um, Judy and Amy Dersher. Um, many of you know this. If you haven't already, um, John Dersher uh, passed away suddenly last Sunday night um, from a heart attack in the middle of the night. Um, just want to say a few words about John uh, this morning. Uh, when a man who spent um, his whole life serving behind the scenes and then dies behind the backdrop of an, uh, a pandemic... It is incumbent on those of us whose gifts put us on the stage to bring servants like this to light and to shine a beautiful uh, light upon them, for they are something glorious to behold. If you knew John, he was an incredibly generous man. Um, he's one of those people who, um, for years, has given money significantly, I think, to the, not only the church, but to campus outreach and many other missions um, efforts around the world. He is a servant. Um, an incredible servant. Uh, most of us have experienced him fixing something in our house at one point or another. Some of the things that those of you that didn't maybe get to know him as well, he was a storyteller and a man of great humor. Uh, he had a great sense of humor. And so he was one who lacked guile and materialism. Um, he was someone who is uh, going to leave a gaping hole in our church. Indeed, has been a great servant leader for many, many years and so, um, so grateful for him and the life that he lived. He was one of those people, frankly, it shocks us that he's gone. I thought he was going to live to 100. Um, he had that kind of physique and that kind of life that looked like that's, that was what was going to happen. But the Lord took him home. So I want to pray um, for, for, for Judy and for Amy this morning. Thanks to so many of you guys. I was reminded this week after being a, a gone for a month how well this church loves. I was there uh, Monday morning with them, and it was just a sea of people coming in and out of their house. And it was a testimony, not only to how well John and Judy and their family are loved, but also how well you as a church do at loving uh, one another. So I thank you for that. I'm so grateful for you pastoring one another well during this week. Let's pray together, and then we'll get to God's word. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are um, the God who has formed us as your worshipers, that you've made us to give glory to and honor to you. And Lord, we particularly this morning, as your people who so often now feel more scattered than gathered, that you would allow us for this, these moments to be gathered together and to worship you. And Lord, we particularly thank you and praise you, Lord, for the life of um, one particular image bearer who gave such great glory and honor to you, who lived a life of servant worship. Um, I think of the phrase, it would be better to tend to the gates of the temple than sit in the places with rich people. Lord, it, it, and this is how John was, that he was one who served at your gates and at your temple um, to be near you and to serve your people. And so we are grateful for him. We thank you for the life that you shaped in him and formed in him, a life of generosity and servanthood, a life of great humor. And his life was indeed was something uh, beautiful, and it gave honor and glory to you, and so we thank you for him. And Lord, we thank you now for, for Judy and for Amy as they uh, grieve. I pray that we would be a people 
who are wise and are insensitive in our um, support and care of them. I pray that, Lord, we would um, have tender and kind words, that, Lord, uh, we would be able to give space where space is needed and we would draw near when being near is needed. I pray that our words and our prayers would never cease, that we would be people who put pen to paper to express to them our gratitude for them and our prayers for them that we would be a people who, even while so often right now we are distant from each other physically, that they would not feel that their church um, is, is far from them. And so thank you, Lord, for the way that your church has already done that this week, the way that King's Chapel and others in our community who love them so well showed up to give their care and their support to honor John and to give support and love for, for Judy and Amy. And so I pray that we would continue on that good work for the many, many years that we're willing that you might give us with this family. And so may we be faithful in that task. Lord, thank you for worship. We thank you for the, the reprieve, the healing that worship does for our souls, that you invite us in a, in with, when weeks are often buffeted by fears and um, difficulty and weariness, that we would be able to come in and look up and be amazed at how great you are. And so would you do that for us now as we look at your word, that you would draw our eyes up in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Psalm 95 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we are not necessarily continuing a series in Psalms. I'll explain where we're, where we're going, but we just happen to be in a psalm to derive uh, where we're going this morning uh, from this text. Psalm 95, I'm going to read through, uh, well, the first seven verses and then a, the first five words of verse 8. Um, so Psalm 95, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, one of the things that um, should be uh, noticed about King's Chapel is our name. Um, we are the King's Chapel. We don't have the definite article in it because we're not pretentious like the Ohio State University. <laughs> but uh, it would be appropriate to say the king, speaking of there is one king, but we don't want to also be considered maybe that we're the only cat chapel that worships, that worships the king. We don't want to be confused for that. But there, the king is what is forward in our name. We are the king's people. Jesus is the king. And the wonder of all at all is that the story of the Bible is that the king came to die for those who were his enemies in order to make them sons and daughters and to bring them into his family. And that family is called the church. And the question that I want and where I want us to go over the next couple of weeks is in the midst of pandemic and being scattered and who knows if we have next week to meet with one another or next month, we don't necessarily know, but a reminder, a critical reminder of why in the world are we doing this whole thing? 
Why are we willing to even put on masks and come and sit awkwardly distant from one another and sing through masks and continue to join together in the midst of a pandemic? Why would we do this? And asking this question, I'm essentially asking this, what are our values? What is our purpose and what is our identity? To put it in other ways, what should identify the children of the king? I want to remind us for the next five to six weeks why we exist. Why King's Chapel exists as this expression of God's family in this particular place and for what reasons. And this church, the value that I want to put forth, we're going to look at five of them over the next couple of weeks. But the first value that we want to center in and make as a part of our identity in the life of our church is worship. That we want to always be making progress in worship. A worship that is more beautiful and sanctified and holistic in all of its ways. We want to say that sitting on your hands in worship is not acceptable. We want to declare that living a life of silence, verse 8 says, respond, don't harden your hearts, that you don't live a hardened unresponsiveness to the glory of God is not becoming of a child of the king, but instead, when you have come to know the God who loves you like we have been loved as his children, that you respond with your voice and with your life. And so we want to value worship. Do you value worship? You value singing. Do you value looking at your life and saying, My life is about living for something, for giving honor and glory to someone. And one of the things often, so often, that are amazing is that the, the things that are most amaze us, the things that we first most love, have become commonplace in our life, then life becomes very dangerous for us. The, 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 in the book of Revelation, one of the, there's these seven letters to the churches, and one of the letters to one of the churches is that there is this condemnation, you have lost your first love. That you have lost your love for the Lord. That what which was once awesome doesn't amaze you anymore. Are you still so amazed by God that you love to worship him? We, we take for things for granted. Heard, heard the story. It's a common type of story about kind of the way life has changed and culture has changed. There was a grandmother and her granddaughter were in a kitchen one day. And one other family member who was there was just kind of creating the kind of like conversational kind of question. And said, asked this question, what is the great modern convenience that's made it so much easier to work in a kitchen? And, and the granddaughter thought about it for a second. She said, the microwave, the microwave. Well, the grandmother very quietly looked up and said, after the granddaughter had said that, well, I think it is simply running water, running water. Oh, that's right. We have running water in our houses. Forget the microwave. We actually get to bathe ourselves and we get to wash our food and we get to actually have running water when we simply turn a spigot. But how long does it take us to be some, become so accustomed to something that once awed us to the fact that maybe God and the fact that his grace and his mercy has been given to us that we lose our awe at the fact that he has invited us to come for our eternal occupation to be his children who worship him. In our heart of hearts, we long to be worshipers. You were made to be a worshiper. And because we know that our life is not weighty, it does not have a sense of purpose unless it is attached to something greater and grander than we are. We are but a moment. We need to attach ourselves to something that is forever. 
So let us talk about what worship is this morning. I want to talk about worship and bring us to an understanding, a better understanding of what it is in concentric circles. Think of three concentric circles. We'll talk about the more broad and our uh, general first, the outer circle, and then move in in these three concentric circles. And in doing this, I am not moving from uh, something that is less important to more important or to see these three concentric circles as being like an outer target into an inner target. But really, we're talking about three foci, focus, ways in which we're looking at worship from the broad perspective to the specific perspective. And so here's your first. First we begin with this. Psalm 95 gives us the general principle or the broad perspective of what worship is. And worship is this. Worship is your whole life response to the revealing of your God. Worship is a whole life response to the revealing of your God. And we're going to do the nerdy thing, the very dictionary thing. I haven't preached in five weeks, and so I'm going back to the idea of just simply defining things for a couple weeks to get my motor running again. But we're going to walk through that definition. First, worship is a whole life, your whole life. Here's two really great definitions of worship is. One from a guy who wrote one of the best books I've read on worship called The Unceasing Worship by Harold Best. He says this, Worship is the continuing outpouring of all that I am and all that I do and all that I can ever become to God. Tim Keller, in a similar definition, says worship is ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your whole being, your mind, your heart, and your will. Psalm 95 actually moves through every aspect of who you are, of all of your faculties as a human being, mind, will, emotions. Look at verses 1 and 2. What does it say? We see the emotions being engaged in worship. For example, it says, shout, sing joyfully, it says. It says it multiple times that we are to have joy, to express and feel joy in our worship. Then in verses 6 and 7, it talks about how our will is supposed to be involved in worship. It says in verse 6 that you, would, you are to submissively bow down. That is a posture, a will saying, God, my, not my will, but yours be done. That is part of our worship. And in fact, there not only do we see the will, but we see the body. That you are to have an outward expression of worship that involves physicality. And lastly, we see the mind. And it's hidden there perhaps for, for the English reader. But it says that we would listen to his voice in verse 7 and in verse 8. That we would respond having listened carefully. That we are not to ignore it. In the Hebrew, what that actually means is to consider, to ponder, to meditate upon the voice of God. So the motions, the will, the body, the mind, all of these things are involved. And so when we come into worship, we want to listen, to think about what God has done and who he is. That's using our minds. We're to meditate and respond with an overflow of praise, with joy and excitement and thanksgiving. And as we think and as we're moved by God, this leads us to worship. And it involves all three of these aspects, all aspects of your faculties, and indeed, that is to be played out then through every moment and every day of your life. Here's the whole life perspective of, emotion, of, of worship given for us by the Apostle Paul. All of life is worship in this sense. It says this in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, which means every part of your life, your body, your activity, your energies are supposed to be lived to give glory and honor to him. We are always worshiping. And therefore, to say that worship involves all that we are, every facet and faculty of our being, we are saying that worship is not simply something that we do, but it refers to our very being. If it's every aspect of your life and every day of your life, we are actually not simply people who do worship. We are worshipers. As the old hippie philosopher says, you got to serve someone. Everyone worships something. And we begin, the Bible begins with this idea that we are all worshipers and we are always worshiping a person or an institution, an idea, or a God in Jesus Christ. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers and will remain so for all of eternity. And the question, though, is this, what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? And the broad understanding of worship, it's our whole life identity, being and doing. And this actually, to connect it to our mission as a church, as our mission of a church, which is to make disciples, that the word disciple can be used, a synonym of the making a disciple is we are about making worshipers at King's Chapel. That we're not simply, we're not just simply about doing worship or valuing worship. We are about creating or forming worshipers. Worship is a value not only that we enact, an identity that we embrace, and it is also a vision for a mission that we seek to fulfill. That we would become and that the world around us would be filled with worshipers. This is, in part, a synonym of the mission of making disciples. John Piper actually says this in his now famous quote in his book on missions. He says that missions exist because what doesn't? Worship doesn't. Because there are people in this world who do not worship the God who is, the true God who is. And so, worship is our whole life, but it's a whole life in response There's always something that we're responding to in worship. It is not something vague and in the ether out there, but worship is a response to something, and in particular for Christian worship, it is a response to the true and biblical gods. What is that something that you are worshiping? And for Christian worship, it is a response to God as he is revealed to us. Worship is realizing afresh the greatness of God, realizing afresh that he is worth your whole life being poured out as a offering, as a sacrifice of praise. Worship is realizing that God is not merely useful to us, but he's actually an object of beauty to you. What does the psalmist tell us to do? In Psalm 147, for example, it says, tells us very succinctly, praise the Lord. You know what the Hebrew word for praise the Lord is? You say it all the time. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And the hallelujah chorus, right, is literally this, we could say, it's the praise the Lord chorus. Some of you, if you grew up in the church like I did, and like I'm teaching my still children, there was a little song, a little ditty that was very redundant. It began this way. You say, hallelujah, 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 and people would respond with an echo, praise ye the Lord. In other words, that's kind of like saying uh, the Spanish word for el nino means the nino, In other words, what you're saying is hallelujah, 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 praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and other people respond with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Hallel means to boast in, and Yah means Yahweh. Hallelujah is to say that God is my boast, he is my life, he is my treasure, and worship is the response to seeing God as the greatest treasure. 
Psalm 95 lists a number of aspects, and it grounds our singing, our praise, our worship, and not simply anything just generally out there, but in who God is and what he has done. Just to lift off a few, it says he is our rock of salvation. It says the Lord is great. He is king over all. He rules and reigns over all creation. He has made us and he has formed us, and he is a shepherd who provides and protects. And for all of these reasons, we give voice and praise and worship to God. So worship is always to be a response shaped by God's glory, shaped by God's glory. In fact, the form of your worship will be shaped by the thing to which you worship. Do you know where the word worthship comes from? It's from the word worth shape. It's an old English phrase. To be shaped, literally what it means is to be shaped by the worth of something. That is to say that worship is something that is, we look at something that is so valuable and we love it so much that it actually reframes and reshapes us. This is why this passage in Romans 12 verses 1 that is so famous about living your life as a spiritual act of worship to God, it follows 11 chapters of a theological magnum opus about what? About how great God is. And so after going on for 11 chapters about how great God is, finally Paul has to say, let's push the, 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 this, this into the leather shoe. Let's push it into our life. How beautiful this God is with a spiritual act of worship. The revealing of God, we see, is to elicit praise. We looked at this about five or six weeks ago, and we looked at Psalm 19. And there is the classic passage on how God reveals himself, and he primarily reveals himself in two spheres. First, the natural world and what is called general revelation that everybody can see. Everybody can see you can go to the Grand Canyon and you're filled with awe. And if you know the true God, then you worship him. He reveals himself there. But the back half of Psalm 19 is about how God specifically or specially reveals himself in a saving way. You see, the shift here in that psalm in Psalm 19 shows us that creation is merely the backdrop of the work of God. It's the backdrop of a larger story in a more beautiful picture, as beautiful as creation is, and as articulately as it communicates how awesome our God is, when you know the saving and redeeming work of God, it is even more profound. You see, if you want to be a worshiper of God, then your chief aim, your, is your, see, if this is what you want to be your single-minded devotion, is to give worship to the Lord with all that you are and all that you have is that you open God's word, because that is where he has revealed himself, and you say to the Lord, show me your glory. Because I want to be shaped by you as a worshiper in every aspect of my life. And so worship begins with God. God has always been the one who is previous to worship. He is the first mover. He is the conductor who, whose wrists flick and his arms sway so that we, the orchestra of his creation, would play in response. But here's the frightening question for us. What in your life most shapes you? The word of God is going to be the one thing that is most shaping us. So we're supposed to spend a lot of time there having God reveal himself and so that we might be shaped. But what is it that actually shapes your life? You see, most of the things that shape us, we are not actually aware of, of them. In fact, the most powerful things that form us and shake us, we are usually completely unconscious of their, or unaware of their place in our life. In May 2005, May 21, 2005, a man named David Foster Wallace, you may have seen a YouTube video 
that someone put together with his speech from what is a now uh, famous speech at the graduation of Kenyon College, in which he titled this essay simply, This is Water. And he begins his essay this way with this little narrative, that there are those, there are these two young fish and they're swimming along in the sea. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them as he passes by, and he says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish continue swimming on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over the other and says, what the heck is water? In other words, it is the things that we are most unconscious of that actually may give us the most life and form us the most. The point is the most obvious, the important realities are often the ones that we even have the hardest talking about in seeing. And the, what, so the question is, what are the things that are most shaping you that you may be unconscious of? Because our unconscious choices form us just as much, if not more, than our conscious decisions. Or we made some really critical, important conscious decision in the past, and now we no longer see its implications and manifestations in our life. For example, if someone 30 years ago would have brought you a phone and said, here's how I'm going to, you need to make a choice right now. If you're going to spend three hours a day doing this on your phone, you'd say, no, I'm not going to make that choice. But like a frog boiling over the last 15 years, what have we become? People who dis, do this for three hours a day. The things, the water that are around, is around you. HGTV is shaping you. Your social media feed is shaping you. Your friends are shaping you. What is it that leads you and is shaping you in such that your world and your life has a certain shape and form of worship? That's rather scary. And this leads us to framing our second point as, to this, as we move into another concentric circle about worship. And this is the specific practice of worship. The specific practice of worship is this. Worship is the practice of gathered storytelling. And I use the word practice there very, very consciously. Practice. That isn't exactly the sexy word one thinks about when you think about coming to worship, right? We're going to go to practice. I mean, in the words of Alan Iverson, when he got in trouble for skipping practice, what did he say to the media? Practice? We're talking about practice? But this puts in stark relief how desperately important we are, and this is what we did this morning and what we are doing. When all of life is meant to pull you down a stream in one direction, a lazy river that actually has a raging rapid that runs underneath of it such that you don't feel the raging rapid, you're simply sauntering along the river. You'll never know how strong culture's push on you is until you try to walk back up the stream. And in a world that is constantly saying life is about you, Life is about these things and about this identity. To come in once a week and actually to push against the stream, guess what? That's going to take practice. Practice. What most shapes you? What I'm saying here is I'm contending that the things that most shape you are never sexy, blunt, or extravagant, but the most powerful forces that shape our lives are our unconscious habits our practices and values that slowly seep into our lives and our brains and they form and they shape us. If you are molding something, particularly something more rigid, does it happen best with blunt trauma or over a long period of time? Some of you won't understand this, but you you may get this. I, I have really great teeth. 
My teeth have always been wonderfully straight. I've never needed much work on my teeth. But for most of you, the reason why most of you are not some crooked-faced, snaggly-toothed Anglo-Saxon is because somebody at some point put metal in your mouth, and after that traumatic event, it started to do something to your face over the course of a couple years, and you never even thought about it again. Or have you ever seen a kid, a baby, who has gone through a fairly traumatic birth, perhaps, and their head is rather pointed? What do we have to do with those babies? Now, do we say, you know what? we got to get this kid's head back in shape, and so we're going to take a two-by-four to this kid's head and just whack him really good, and hopefully that traumatic blow to his head will bring things back into the correct shape. No, what do we do? We put a cap on his head, and he looks like a miniature football player for the first year of his life. Why? Because it is a slow reshaping. Now, understand this. Usually the most profound shapers of life are the omnipresent things done over and over and over again. And yet the most of us, what you want from worship is to come in to have a worship experience. You want the blunt trauma of the two by four against your cranium trying to fix you. But in reality, the worship in biblical sources and in the church history is not something first and foremost that a person experiences. It is instead something that we practice. It is a habit. You see, feelings are great liars, and if Christians only worship when we were feeling very worshipful, then it wouldn't happen very often. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much more quickly than we can feel our way into new actions. Worship is first an act that develops a feeling, an affection for God, and secondarily, a feeling for God that is expressed as an act of worship. And therefore, worship is a formative practice, or we might say a reformative practice. In the world of worship, we call this practice liturgy. A liturgy is a pattern of words or actions repeated regularly. That sounds like practice, right? If you're a basketball player and you have a screwy-looking shot and they want to fix it, guess what they have to do? They fix your form and then they say, hey, do that 10,000 times. And in a world that is constantly trying to form you and reshape you and make you malignant in shape, that what we desperately need is to have something that we regularly practice that puts us in its bind in a vice grip that changes us. And what is it that we practice in Christian worship? What is it that we are to repeat in the hopes that it will shape or reshape us? What do we need to hear over and over and over again? And well, we come back to the second half of, that, of this definition. It is the practice of listening to and retelling the gospel story. You see, there is a, a story that you may not know that is being told to you, but there is a story around that is being told to you about who you are and what your value is and how you ought to live. And you add to this the fact that you are a very forgetful people. And by you, I mean me who forget the true story of what God is doing in this world. And therefore, what we need is a countercultural story. And that is exactly what worship is. This is a revolutionary act. It is a resisting act against the world and against the obsession of self, saying, I need to be shaped by something else this week. And so what we desperately need on a Sunday is to come together and be what? Reminded. Reminded. We're going to talk this morning about the two most oft-repeated commandments in all the scriptures. Here's the first one. Remember. Remember. To remember a true and better story. Eugene Peterson, I don't have this up on your screen for you, but he says this. Every call to worship 
is a call into the real world. He said, I encounter such constant and widespread lying throughout my week about the reality of each day and meet with such skilled and systematic distortion of the truth that I'm always in danger of losing my grip on reality. The reality, though, of course, is that God is sovereign and that Christ is Savior. And the reality is that prayer is my mother tongue and communion my basic food. And the reality is that baptism, not the Myers-Briggs, defines who I am. One of the primary things we are doing when we gather is disrupting the stories and the messages that we hear throughout the week. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and the narrative that we are trying to write and listened, well, as the old hymn would say it, to the old, old story. And this is why worship, even the order of worship, ought to be designed around pointing us to gospel proclamation and rearticulation. In fact, if you take our membership class, I uh, give you something called the KCP worship philosophy, which usually probably makes people glaze over because we use the word philosophy, but here it is anyways. And I say in three parts that why you want our worship to be word-driven dialogue. That's where we started this morning, right? That it begins with God's word and we respond. That's what worship is. God speaks, God shows us his character, and we respond to him. That it's a gospel storied. That worship is telling a story of creation and fall and how he comes to redeem us and now we look forward with hope at a rest to the restoration. And lastly, at the core of that story, it is Christ-centered. That the center of this retelling, we are talking about Jesus and his person and his work and all that he has accomplished for us. And this is really important. We come to tell that story together. Gathered storytelling. Psalm 95 does not say you in the singular. It does not say, hey, I worship the Lord with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, it says what? Let us. Did you know that 60 out of the 66 books of the Bible, actually more than that, but all of 60 out of the 66 books of the Bible are written to communities of believers? Very few books of the Bible are actually written to individuals because it's meant for us. Let us gather together because we need each other. You know, there's this amazing place in Hebrews chapter 10 where it talks about this beautiful picture of describing the access that each of us individually have to God the Father. And it's amazing, it's wonderful, and you can personally know God and speak to him. And yet the author at the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews says this, despite the fact that we have this right as a child of God to enter into his presence with intimacy and personally, he says this in verse 24. And so let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit, habit, practice, the habit of some, but instead encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, why do we gather together? Because one, we need accountability, and two, sometimes I don't feel like coming because it's practice. And it's practice. And sometimes I don't want to come to practice. I don't want to go work out. I don't want to do this. And so what do we need? We know what it means to stir one another up and to encourage one another, as it says in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It means you tell each other the gospel story again. I forgot it this week. And I'm too doggone tired to say it to myself and remember it for myself. And so I need you to show up and to sing it to me. That's what I need. Well, one final concentric circle. And this is the particular act in our life of worship and the practice of worship. There's something specific. Wouldn't, it wouldn't be right to say it's the core, 
but it's something that we are to do in all of these other aspects. You are to sing. Worship is singing. You sing in a worship service. You sing in all aspects of your life. You should go through your days singing. This particular act, is the worship is the act of ascribing glory to God in song. Worship is ascribing ultimate value, responding to God's ultimate value by telling him that he is ultimately valuable. There's this little preposition in Psalm 5 that is really key, and it happens twice. It says, come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout for joy. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And then it says, for. Why? That means why. Why? What triggers this singing and this joy and this shouting? For the Lord is great. But the form of worship most often commanded in the scriptures for our worship is to sing. So I said there's two commandments. It's the two most oft-repeated commandments. The first one is remember. The second one is sing. In fact, in the Psalms alone, there are over 100 places where we are commanded to sing. Psalm 33, for example, says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, for it is fitting thus to praise him. Praise the Lord with harp. Make music to him. Sing to him with new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. The act, what we see here, what I want you to see is we are called here, and this is a great example of the act leading to the feeling, the act leading to the affection, is that by being called in to sing, the actual act of singing in worship and giving exaltation to who God is actually increases your experience of delight in who he is. It's like riding a roller coaster. This is always the illustration I go back to. No one ride, if you ride a roller coaster and remain taciturn, that is boring. Why would you do that? You have to scream if you're going to ride a roller coaster. The delight of riding a roller coaster is just, just to kind of give forth yells, barbaric yells. And in the same way, the more you actually give voice to how great God is, you experience how great he is. And thus we must sing. And singing is a theme line that runs from the beginning of end, from the beginning of creation to the end of all time. There was singing at creation. Did you know it? Psalm, or Job chapter 38, God says, when I laid the foundations of the earth, the stars and the angels sang for joy. In Proverbs 8, we're told that when God was creating the world in wisdom, the beings, the angels who were watching, essentially were dancing and singing for joy. And what does creation do in response to the song of creation? In Psalm 19 verse 1, it says, creation sings back. C.S. Lewis in his second book, or maybe his sixth book, we're not really sure which way we're supposed to read it. It's The Magician's Nephew, and it's the C.S. Lewis Narnia account of God creating the world. And here, when Aslan, the lion, creates the world, he does so by dancing and singing. And wherever he goes, things go from gray to color, and things bring life and burst forth in fruits. Do you know they're singing in heaven for all of eternity? In case you weren't aware. Isaiah 55 says that when the coming of the Lord, it says, when he comes back, it says, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills will burst forth into song before you, and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Psalm 96 says that then shall the trees of the wood sing for joy before the Lord. When? When he comes back to rule the earth. At the end of all things, we will join all creation in song. This is your past, and this is your future to sing. Now, I've made fun of the idea of being an eternal choir, much to Ed's chagrin. Now, let me understand, understand this about the eternal life of the kingdom, is you're going to do a lot more than sing, but you're never going to do less than singing. That means whatever work you're going to be doing, you're going to be whistling while you work. 
And so the story of the gospel is seen at the beginning and singing for all of eternity, but it's also in the stories of scriptures that tell us right now that are we singing? Does creation sing now? In some way, shape, or form, but perhaps more than hearing creation's voice of praise to God, Romans 8.23 says that all creation now groans. Gives forth, yes, a song, but it's a lament. Creation went from singing and praises and glory to groaning because of the fall of man, and all creation became broken. And we were supposed to sing praises to God, and instead we shouted curses at God. We are like the armies of old that talk about lopping off the king's head. We're going out to battle. We're going to kill the tyrant today. This is what we sing, and this is what we sing about God. And if we attempt to sing praise in our brokenness, it only comes out like a moan and a groan. And so we need one who will reteach us and re-enable us to sing a beautiful song. And this is exactly what Jesus does. So what does Jesus do? Jesus came to sing a perfect song for us. Yes, this is Christ's exemplar. Jesus is an example. He taught us a Romans 12.1 worship that your life poured out every core of your day, every second of your life, every part of your body given forth as a praise and worship and honor to God. Yes, he does that. But we also see in Hebrews chapter 2, it actually says that Jesus is now the choir director. He is the leader of congregational singing. In Hebrews 12, or 2 verse 12, it says, I will praise you, O God, Jesus says, in the midst of the congregation. Jesus will lead us in worship to the Father. But do you know what it costs Jesus to become our choir director? To reteach you how to sing? You see, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 is a quote from the end of Psalm 22. You know where else Psalm 22 is quoted? The beginning of Psalm 22, it begins this way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. He says, the beginning there, he says, it's nothing but it's groanings. It says, you've pierced my hands and my feet and you've divided my garments. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, who for all of eternity has had the song of the Father and the song of the angels being sung over him, he instead got the silence of God, the forsaking silence of all of heaven. And on the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the groaning of all of nature. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our curses our songs of tyranny against God. He got the silence of God so that our sins and our curses, our terrible songs of rebellion could be covered over and so that someday we could stand before the Father in the new heavens and the new earth and join him in the choirs of heaven, worshiping the Father. So Jesus groaned, and he took the wrath of God the Father. Why? So that the Father could reteach us how to sing. So that our Father the King could retell us the true story of his love for us over and over and over again. Zephaniah 3.17 says, For the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. God sings over you. You know how you become a good singer? Listen, if you're a mediocre singer like me, All it takes is somebody who sings like a bullfrog within a 10-foot perimeter of me, and I start singing just like them. But I'm at least a halfway decent singer that if someone actually has a good voice somewhere near me, I can follow them. And that is what we do each week. If we come to hear the song of the Savior who reteaches us the songs of heaven, 
of God's fatherly love for us and his affection for us. And so King's Chapel, you are the king's worshiping family. And the first value of our church is to be this and to do this. And so I end where Psalm chapter 95 ends. Today, if you hear his voice, O child, you hear the voice of the one who sings over you his love and affection for you, do not harden your hearts, but sing back. Be retuned by his love. Let's pray. Lord, we are fish swimming in a sea. We call it various things, culture, the world. But we are singing in a sea that seeks to tell us a different story. And Lord, forgive us for being so arrogant to think that we can swim in that sea and merely kind of spend some time hearing a different story every once in a while. With making Sabbath worship an option, well, we desperately need to hear a better story. And so I pray that on the Sunday mornings, perhaps like this one, where we don't feel like coming to church, and these days it's even, we don't want to have to wear a mask, and we don't want to have to deal with squiggly children, and we don't want to have to sing, and we're tired. Would we come to practice? And Lord, would we encourage one another and build each other up so that we might reteach each other the song of our Savior. Lord, incline our hearts to hear better. Retune us to the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, your benediction. Just as a reminder, we have offering plates in the back. If you want to drop an offering there. Hey, we end with this great word, Church of Jesus Christ. In all your darkness and troubles, remember this, that what you are and what you have that you have been loved with an everlasting love, you are supported with everlasting arms, and you're recipients of everlasting life and heirs of an everlasting kingdom. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.